I want to tell you a little story about my wife, Nancy. She gave me permission to tell it. She has what I would consider kind of a strange phobia. She's afraid of being in outer space. Anyone else have that fear? When I remind her of her chances of ever being out in outer space, she corrects me and she says, but if you think about it, we are in outer space already. And she starts thinking about being on planet Earth and just the sheer vast emptiness and, and space between us and the nearest planet. And her mind starts going further and she starts to think about just the sheer size of the whole solar system. And then her mind goes even farther and realizes that the solar system is just one tiny little dot in a much larger galaxy. And then her mind goes further and realizes that the galaxy itself is just a tiny little dot in our little neighborhood of the universe. All of the sheer vast size of the universe just freaks her out. Similarly, my older brother, he called me a couple years ago, and he was thinking about just the bigness of the universe. And he had been spending some time in prayer, and he was talking with God, and God revealed something to him. God opened his eyes a little bit and showed my brother something that terrified him. I remember the call because his voice was trembling, and he was thinking about the size of the universe, and then he saw in his mind's eye, even bigger, even above, even beyond the size of the universe was God, the same God that he prays to, that he talks to, who promises to be with him. And my brother said, I think I now understand that phrase, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And he remembered that wonderful line in Amazing Grace where it says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." The bigness of God. Not long after that phone call from my brother, I was uh, sitting in my living room reading a theology book. It was a particularly thick book. My mind had to strain to understand what the author was getting at. And while I was reading it, page after page, I, I started overhearing my children who were in the next room. At the time, they were about ages five and three. And I could overhear them because they were arguing. I don't remember what they were arguing about, but I remember that my son, Riley, was quite certain of his position, and my daughter, Evangeline, was quite sure that she was right. And I remember listening to them, and I knew that actually they were both wrong. But it was kind of cute to overhear them, you know? And I looked back down at my lap at that theology book, and the thought occurred to me, I wonder if this is what it's like for God when he overhears our theological arguments. Oh, it's kind of cute. They're, they're almost right, maybe. But, you know, in his infinitely wise mind, God overhears our puny little human brains, no matter how sophisticated our theological arguments. And I wonder if he thinks, well, it's cute that they're learning how to argue, but, but no. Of course, I'm telling you all these stories because I want you to be thinking about the conclusion of Job when Job, when God comes out of the whirlwind and appears to Job, as you know, if you've been here for the last few weeks, we've been in a sermon series on the book of Job, trying to understand grief, trying to understand suffering from a Christian perspective. What do we learn about God? What do we learn about ourselves when we're in the midst of grief and suffering? So we've been studying Job, and here at the conclusion of it, there's one takeaway that I've been thinking about, and it's this. It's that grief reveals that we are less wise and that God is more powerful than we previously imagined. 
grief reveals that we are less wise and that God is more powerful than we previously imagined. You might recall the story of Job. He's a man, he's a righteous man, and he suddenly experiences tremendous grief where he first loses his wife and then he loses his children and then he loses all of his possessions and finally Job loses his health and he's in tremendous despair. And he has three friends who come and arrive in his place and they see the gravity of his suffering and they just sit with him for seven whole days. They don't say anything. They just grieve with him. But then at the end of that seven days, all of them open their mouths and they start talking. They start theologizing. They start coming up with their way of figuring out how this righteous man could be suffering so much. And in the book of Job, for 35 whole chapters, the three friends give monologue after monologue of bad theology. It's actually pretty bad. They start equating righteousness with reward. They're just sure that somehow Job must be deserving of all the punishment that he's receiving. Now, I say it's bad theology, but I only say that because that's what God says about it. In chapter 42, when God is speaking, he addresses the three friends who've just been talking for 35 chapters, just been arguing and theologizing about Job's suffering, and God says to them, my anger burns against you because you have spoken about me that which is not right. So God corrects all of their theology and all of those 35 chapters. You have to remember the ending of Job when God says that about the three friends when you're reading in the middle. Don't ever take a little quote from the middle of Job. It might just be something that God discredits in the end. The book of Job is one of those, it's like one of those movies with a twist at the end, you know, like an M. Night Shyamalan movie where there's a big twist at the end and it redefines everything that you just saw before, God says to the three friends, you have not spoken of me that which is right, like my servant Job has. So the three friends come up with a basic conclusion in all those 35 chapters that there's a correlation between righteousness and reward. Let me just give you a couple examples of what they say. In chapter 4, verse 7, one of the three friends, he asks the question, he says, who who is truly innocent, has ever perished. And if you think about that for longer than like three seconds, you can come up with examples. Another friend in chapter 8, he's just sure that even though Job was living a righteous life, there must have been some hidden sins from his children. And so he encourages Job to start repenting for the sins, the possible hypothetical potential sins of his children, because God must be punishing him for those potential sins of his children. That's chapter 8. Chapter 11, the third friend, it gets even worse because the third friend says he's just so convinced that Job is just such an awful guy deserving of all this punishment. He looks at Job and he says, you know, if you think about it, you actually deserve worse. So you can add those to the list that Pastor Jackie said last week of things not to say to people who are grieving. You see, the three friends, they came up with the best in their human understanding, the best in their human reasoning to try to put words on the tremendous grief that Job was experiencing. But all of the human wisdom that they came up with didn't help. It wasn't helping. It was wrong. It was discredited by God. In the end, grief reveals that we are less wise than we previously imagined. Let me put it to you this way. Have you ever heard somebody say, somebody who's just gone through the grief process, 
let's say they had a loved one die like a year ago or two years ago. There was a tremendous tragedy in their life. Have you ever heard a person like that say, you know what the grief process told me? You know what that tragedy taught me? It taught me that actually I did have all the answers. I did have life totally figured out. And when that tragedy came, it confirmed that I was just so wise. No, you've never heard that, have you? People are humble after a tragedy. They're humble in the midst of grief because grief reveals that we're less wise than we thought we were, but also that God is more powerful than we previously imagined. God says to the three friends, you've spoken of me what is not right like my servant Job has. Okay, so there's something. God says that Job spoke rightly about him. So what did Job do throughout the book of Job? Well, he did two things. Job, in the first part, just keeps reminding the three friends that they're incorrect. When the one friend says, who who is innocent has ever perished? Job says, I can think of plenty of examples of innocent people who have died unjustly. And I can think of plenty of examples of sinful people who prosper. So there's no correlation between righteousness and reward. God doesn't work that way. God loves our righteousness. Yes, sometimes our righteousness has reward here on earth because it earns things, right? But God isn't up in heaven ready to dole out blessing to those who are righteous and ready to dole out curse to those who are unrighteous. It's just not how he works. His love is unconditional. The rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. So that's the first thing Job does. He just reminds them that there is no correlation between righteousness and reward. But secondly, and more importantly, Job, throughout the book, simply cries out to God. He simply cries out in the face of God. The three friends talk a lot about God, but Job cries out to God. He says things like, why? And how long? Because Job, in his grief, was understanding that he was not as wise as he previously thought, but also that God was more powerful. God was big enough to take it. God was big enough to receive Job's lament. I sat with somebody in the prayer chapel just a couple of weeks ago. She had just experienced a tremendous tragedy. She was feeling angry inside, but then she was also feeling tremendous guilt because she wanted to just cry out to God and ask him why. And I said, you know what? God's big enough to take that. And then I watched her as she just kind of yelled at God. It was so beautiful. It was therapeutic for her. Guilt-free. You can do that. Did you know that? God is big enough. God is powerful enough. He wants you to do that. He wants you to cry out to him saying, why and how long? That's what Job did. Job was understanding that he was less wise than he previously imagined, but also that God was more powerful. And boy, does God show his power in this text. Chapter 38, verse 1, it says, The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Now just imagine that for a second. Imagine a hurricane coming to your house, a tornado in your living room, the violent wind, and then boom, God. And what does he say to Job? He asks Job a series of questions that can best be described as a holy smackdown. <laughs> after all that talking, after all that theologizing, after all that crying out, God says to Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? 
And he asks Job a series of questions that go on for four whole chapters. You should take some time and read it. It's astounding. He, t- he takes Job on a tour of the universe with his questions. He starts mentioning the constellations, for example. And he asks Job, did you place those stars out in deep space so that when they're viewed from earth, they look like a, a bear or a lion? Did you put those stars in space, Job? He has him consider the mountain goats giving birth in the mountains. Did you design that process, Job? Are you there every time a mountain goat gives birth to a calf and has to learn how to stand up on its wobbly legs? Did you design that process? Are you breathing life into every mammal on earth, Job? And there's one that I love where he starts mentioning thunderstorms. And he says, Job, tell me, can you summon lightning bolts like a man whistles for dogs? And the lightning bolts come running saying, here we are. He has a series of questions. He takes Job on a tour of the universe, simply showing him his tremendous might. He shows him that he is God and that Job is not. Right in the middle of the four chapters, Job peeps up just for a second. But all he says is, my hand is over my mouth. I'm silent. And God goes on for two more chapters. I love it. And I love picturing Job and the three friends during this long speech from God. I just picture them kind of holding on for dear life, holding on to their chairs, holding on to one another as God goes on and on. Now, maybe you're sitting there thinking, isn't God being kind of mean? You know, I kind of like Jesus meek and mild more than the God of the ending of Job. Isn't God being kind of mean? The answer to that question is no. First of all, God lets these guys go on for 35 long chapters saying wrong things about him. So there's a grace in there. But more importantly, God was giving Job exactly what Job had asked for. You should go read through Job's chapters. Basically, Job is saying why, and he's saying how long, but he's also saying, God, you're not doing a very good job of being God. Let me in the ring with you. Let's work this out, God. You see? So God says, fine. You want to get in the ring with me? Dress for action like a man, it says. Put on your big boy pants, Job. Let's go in the boxing (laughs) ring. And then he shows Job his might. He takes him on a tour of the universe, shows to Job that he is God and that Job is not. Job was understanding, probably for the first time, that he was less wise than he thought he was, but also that God was more powerful than he ever imagined. I've been saying that all along, that God is more powerful than we previously imagined, but I want to amend that just a little bit as I think about the way Job finally starts talking to God, which we're going to read in just a moment in chapter 42. It's true that grief reveals that we're less wise and that God is more powerful but also that God is more wonderful, that God is more gracious, that God is more loving, that God is more compassionate and kind. That's the conclusion Job comes to in chapter 42 when he finally has the courage to speak again to God. Let's read it together. We'll put it up on the screen. Chapter 42 says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. 
Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Now listen, he says, things too wonderful for me. Not just things too awful, things too terrible, as God took him on that tour of the universe. Job says, you're powerful, God, yes, but you're wonderful. I see now that you hold the universe in the palm of your hand. I see how wonderful you are. And then he says, my, my ears had heard about you, but now my eye sees you. His eyes were open like my brothers were when he gave me that phone call. His eyes were open to the power of God. And it filled him with wonder. Now here's the amazing thing for us. If Job was filled with wonder at the power of God, how much more so for those of us who know Jesus should we be filled with wonder at the grace of God? If Job was full of wonder when he was able to behold the power of God, how much more so should we be full of wonder when we can behold the grace of God in Jesus Christ? Job didn't even get to see what happened. Job didn't get to read Philippians chapter 2, which goes like this. Consider Jesus, who though he was in very form God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself and took on the very form of a servant and humbled himself. And when he was found in human likeness, he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Do you want to be filled with wonder at the power of God? Just look at the descent of Jesus, who was God, who is God, bigger than the universe, but who sees us in this world, who sees us in our place of suffering and grief and sin. It doesn't stand aloof. It doesn't stay off above and beyond the universe, but enters in. He, he came to our dusty planet. He took on the sins of the whole world. He was obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's what he did about sin and suffering and grief. He didn't leave us alone. He didn't punish us as our sins deserve, but he came and he died in our place so that we could be with him forever. If Job was so full of wonder at the grand power of God, how much more so should you and I, when our eyes are open to see what Jesus has done for us, be full of wonder and hope? The majesty of God revealed in Jesus Christ dying on the cross. Now I want to just leave you with a couple of questions. They won't be as harsh as God's questions to Job, I promise. But instead of giving you a, a pithy little phrase, something to write down and bring home, I'm just going to ask you a couple of questions. I'll leave a few seconds of silence for you to consider these. How big is your God? God you pray to, the God you talk about. <clears throat> Secondly, how wise are you in your own eyes?
And lastly, if God were to appear to you tonight, if a whirlwind came into your life, and God appeared there, what would he show you?